I was once an iron soldier, and I've been where the eagles call. I will tell of a shining city, and how she came to fall. My name is Henry, and I'd like to welcome you to Fortress on a Hill. My co-hosts and I are a group of leftist American veterans who scour the news headlines looking for stories related to the military and veteran communities of the U.S. But you're not going to hear most of the typical military tropes here. Here we take those same stories and we clear out some of the cobwebs and bullshit. We ask hard questions of our leaders and demand an end to the militarism that has permeated our society. We have a military budget of $750 billion, three times more than China, and seven times more than Russia. While here at home, American infrastructure and domestic policy languish, especially in the era of Donald Trump. However, Big Don is only the latest in a long line of presidential warmongers and bastards. Our country has lost enough to regime change and military operations the world over, Operations that, by and large, only take innocent lives or providing no real protection from threats to our country. Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Niger, and the list goes on. It's time for a change. Thank you for being with us. Suzanne Gordon, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for coming to talk with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start with talking about, from your perspective, what the status is on, on the VA as a whole today, and um, specifically about in terms of where we are with funding and where we are with the amount of openings that uh, need to be filled within the organization. What can you tell us about that? So, um I just want to clarify, because I think it's really important that when we talk about the VA, um, we talk, we're focusing in, I, I, I think we're, we're focusing in on the Veterans Health Administration, because a lot of times I've learned that when a veteran is talking about the VA, it, you know, it, it's not clear which sub-agency in the VA they're talking about. Because sure, sure. the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs, second largest agency after the Pentagon, which picks up the problems the Pentagon creates in many instances, is, um, um, or the Department of Defense, you know, um, is, is the, has uh, four entities within it. The, the Veterans Health Administration, which is the largest and only publicly funded uh, integrated healthcare system in the country, um, the Veterans Benefit Administration that does the benefits like the GI loans, act compensation and pensions, um, and other things, including 
helping with access to the Veterans Health Administration, the Cemetery Administration, and then the Office of Information Technology. So the the state of the VHA, the Veterans Health Administration, which is really what everybody's talking about mostly, sometimes the VBA, because there's huge backlogs of of claims at the VBA because it's chronically underfunded and understaffed. But the VHA, the state of it is uh, contrary to what you read in the media, and, and it's what I describe in my book, Wounds of War. It it delivers health, healing, and hope to around 9 million eligible veterans, and it's, as studies and my own research show, has better wait times than the private sector, higher quality, well, quality that's equal to and often higher than the private sector. And it's a—it's not just a medical system that treats medical diseases, you know, episodically. It's a, it integrates mental health and behavioral health into, into physical health. And it's also really kind of a public health system because it helps veterans through interconnections with other agencies in the VA and other federal agencies and and public agencies and private agencies. It it deals with homelessness, employment, um, legal issues, and so forth. So it's really an extraordinary health care system as opposed to what I have as a civilian, which is I have, fortunately health insurance that gives me access to a sort of fragmented disease care system. And uh, th- thank you for correcting me on that, by the way. Yeah, I, need, I, I need to make, make sure that I'm being, being precise with what we're talking about because the, the VA does, does become kind of a big gross monster that everybody just throws their shit at. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> um, so uh, something that I, I was fascinated about, I listened to your spot with, uh, on the majority report with Sam Cedar uh, yesterday, and you had mentioned about how the VHA is prevented from providing market-based salaries to yeah. their employees. Will you talk about that, please? Absolutely. So um, Congress has imposed all kinds of limitations and restrictions on um, the VHA. One of them is that not all veterans can be served by the VA. So we have 20 million vets in America. Only 9 million are currently enrolled. There's probably 3 million that could more that could be enrolled. And you can't get VHA care if you have too much money. And, and by too much money, I don't mean billionaire I mean, you know, if you're kind of middle and upper middle class or if you're if you're too healthy, you Mm -hmm. have to have some kind of service related disability and or low income. And of the 300,000 employees in the VHA, a third of whom, by the way, are veterans, um, they have a lot of problems hiring because they're not allowed in many instances to offer market rate salaries. and some they're trying to fix that in some areas, but it's a real problem because I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, the most you know expensive housing market in the country. And if you're a social worker and you're offered thirty grand more at UCSF or Sutter, well, you can't afford, you know, because I want to give my life or devote my life to caring for veterans. 
it makes it really difficult. Um, and the other thing they're not allowed to do is they're not allowed to market and advertise. So, and they aren't given budgets to have more than a couple of public affairs officers. These are PR specialists in a large medical center. There's 170 medical centers. And, you know, like in San Francisco or Sacramento or San Diego or Chicago, they might have two public affairs people who have to do everything, you know, contact veterans, do, do computer stuff, newsletters, events, et cetera, and deal with the media. And, and you know, a similar-sized hospital would have 10, 20, 50, who knows, you know, and a budget of a million or more to do marketing. And so the VA can't, you know, counter the bad publicity that the conservative billionaire Koch brothers and their concerned Veterans for America is putting out because they don't have a budget and they can't buy ads on radio or TV. Not not that I think we should be spending any of our health care dollars on ads, but, you know, these big systems that want to kill the VA, like the Cleveland Clinic and so forth, they spend millions and millions and they you know, they get their docs on all kinds of shows and in the guise of information, giving patients information, and the VA can't do that. So the, so the thing that's happening now is, you know, they're constantly saying, oh, the VA has to compete with the private sector and the VA will win, but how can it win if it's got its hands tied behind its back because it can't advertise and can't market? Yeah, no, there is there is no winning in that situation, and even you know, and and it's it's even possible that a marketing budget would end up paying for itself, as far as if if they were actually to put money towards it. But yeah, it sounds like they are just entirely tied, and and there's there's nothing to be done under the current uh, under the current way that that's handled. Right, and they basically are not letting people know. Uh, I mean, they don't have the capacity at the local level. The other thing is that at the local level, they're not allowed to pitch a, a national story. They have to go to VA central office, and VA central office often kills it, particularly under Trump, because they have no interest in promoting how great the VA is. And they would never, I mean, the real competition guys would be if, you know, they offered to say, if they could, if they had the money to beat market salaries, you know, I mean, they would never allow them to do that because they don't want uh, a, a public, um, you know, I think many people, including many Democrats who are really sort of market addicts, don't want a successful publicly funded healthcare system, which is what the VA is. And that is, in my view, why the Koch brothers are spending millions of dollars attacking it, um, because they don't want real competition. I mean, all these people who talk about competition, they don't want real competition. No, no. It's interesting um, when you have people that uh, get their master's in social work, um, being in social work, I'm around a lot of people with MSWs and uh, you get your master's and then you get licensed. And uh, so people at the VA, if they start, if they get an, their MSW and they become a social worker, they're usually at like GS 10, which mm -hmm. is like 65. Mm -hmm. And 
then if they get their license, then they can go up to GS11. But apparently it used to be a little higher. And But I mean, I have friends that are MSWs that are not licensed and they're working for private healthcare companies and they're making like 95. You yeah. know? And it's, it's frustrating because people, you go to a master's program, you have all that debt and you say, right. okay, I'm going to get a good job. And you, but if you want to work with veterans, you're going to have to take a pay cut. Yeah, it, it's just, you know, it's crazy. And, and I mean, it used to be that people before this huge housing crisis and so forth, you know, people would make trade-offs to work with veterans because you were in a, a mission-driven, not a profit-driven system. You didn't have insurance company hassles. You didn't have all these kind of ridiculous productivity pressures and performance pressures. But now they're you know, and, and you certainly didn't have the kind of media and congressional VA bashing that you have now. But now, you know, you have Congress trying to destroy the system, you know, bashing VA, dedicated VA caregivers, the media, you know, putting out all these horrible headlines and never doing unbiased coverage. And then you have, you know, this housing crisis. And then you also have them starting to impose a lot of the same kind of productivity pressures and hassles that are, you know, physicians and nurses and social workers and psychologists complain about in, in the private sector. So, I mean, people are, you know, wondering, like, you know, it's no wonder that they can't hire people. And, you know, the other thing is, as you all know, because you're, I, I think you both use the VA, right? Yeah. So, you know, and you're probably pretty complex patients and you know a lot of veterans and veterans are very complex patients. I mean, the average 65-year-old Medicare patient has three to five presenting problems. The average Vietnam vet has nine to 12. You know, my friend who's a veteran from Iraq, combat veteran, has he's 32, has 16 different medical and psychological problems. Um and there are some awfully grumpy veterans out there, too. You know, they're not necessarily easy patients to take care of. So um, it's really hard to take care of patients and with so many complex problems. And VA physicians, I mean, if you, if you really did it right, you would pay them more than the private sector uh, VA caregivers because you would look at what they're dealing with, you know. Um, you wouldn't pay them less. You'd pay them more <laughs> if we had a rational system. But then, of course, if we didn't have all these wars, we wouldn't have all these problems. So that would be another way. Your your book mentioned a phenomenon where the media essentially fails entirely to cover good news at the VA, but when something goes, or excuse me, the VHA, yeah. but when things go wrong, there's uh, there's no end of media attention. Talk about this a little bit. Oh, yeah. It's just awful. I mean, uh, the Boston Globe, USA Today, the New York Times, CNN, all of them are, you know, there is no balanced coverage. Um, and what's really interesting is we, they cover bad things because obviously it's a huge healthcare system. It's the largest healthcare system in the country. So you have 9 million patients, 1,255 different sites of care, 170 medical centers. There's going to be things that go wrong, right? Um, but they, 
and those things should be covered. And the reason why we know a lot about these things is that go wrong is because the VHA is the most accountable and transparent healthcare system in the country. I mean, you have Congress overseeing it. You have the Office of the Inspector General, the Gen- Government Accounting Office, all doing reports on any problem. It's all made public. You know, if there's a problem at the Cleveland Clinic or, you know, Oregon Health Sciences University or whatever, people may not know about it. If somebody, if there was malpractice, they may not know about it because people sign non-disclosure agreements if they settle. So we don't know about a lot of the problems in the private sector. We do know that 200, between 250,000 and 400,000 people die every year in America in the private sector because of preventable medical errors and injuries, but they never mention that in these reports on the VHA. So all you get is a steady stream of, you know, some patient died here, some patient was hurt there, some patient complained there. Fine. That's fine. You want to report on that. That's journalist business. But healthcare reporters or veterans reporters never report on the good things that the VHA does. They don't report on the research they do, the teaching that they do, um, the innovations in clinical care. Like, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but, you know, you go to your primary care doc in the VHA and you say, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling depressed. They don't, ref- they don't write you a referral to some psychologist or social worker or nurse practitioner who they don't know and have never talked to, but, you know, the, the, your insurance company will pay for it. They walk you down the hall and introduce you to a psychologist or psychiatric nurse practitioner who will deal with your problems on the spot. And that makes it really a lot easier to get mental health care. I mean, I have a friend who has some real pain issues. She's covered by the private sector, and, you know, she is, like, in terrible pain. She has to be her own patient advocate. And, and you know, they kind of recommend psychology, you know, getting cognitive behavioral therapy or something, but she's, like, very resistant, and she won't make an appointment. Well, if she was a VHA patient, They'd walk her down the hall and introduce her to the person, and she would talk to that person, and she might suddenly realize, oh, wow, this could help me, and she might, like, get the kind of psychological help she needs to deal with her chronic pain. But that won't happen ever because of the way the private sector system is organized. So you had mentioned a little bit about um, medical um medical malpractice by VHA doctors. And that, that's something, you know, we've, I've occasionally covered a story here on the podcast about some certain ones about that. But the, the thing that's more, that's more interesting to me than the malpractice, which certainly isn't good, um, is about the licensing and how different states licensing and the VA can, I, I wouldn't say they clash, but sometimes doctors that shouldn't be practicing end up at the, at the VHA. Can you talk about this a little bit? You know, I don't know that much about that, um, Henry. I um, I know that, um, you know, you, you, I really don't know about how they license. I mean, the problem with a bad outcome in the VHA as opposed to the... I mean, VA, the, because the VHA is a federal system, 
its regulations supersede state regulations. Mm. So, you know, you, you, for example, a lot of veterans want medical marijuana, and the VH, and let's say they live in California or Colorado or, I don't know, is Oregon have, I'm not sure what the rules are we, in Oregon. We, we have but, medical and legalized marijuana in Oregon. Right. Okay, but if in, but... The VHA in in Portland, for example, or in San Francisco, their doctors might want to be able to prescribe for you that and you have it paid for, but they can't because it's against the law federally, Mm. and federal law supersedes state laws. So in the case of medical marijuana, that is that it's, it's not good for veterans who want that. And, of course, you know that the right wing is very anti-even CBD, which has no psychogenic or hallucinogenic properties. You know, it's it's ridiculous, in my view. Um, oh, it is. It's I mean, absolutely I ridiculous. C- I use CBD, and I, I have to tell you, I stopped taking my little pills, and um, the pain in my finger was like came back, and my little pinky, which I think is probably arthritis, and then I took the pill again, and it was, like, gone in, like, 10 seconds. It was amazing. Or, well, more than 10 seconds. But, you know, on the other hand, um, the VHA supersedes state law, and that works to veterans' advantage in some instances. For example, nurse practitioners are allowed to practice within the VA without physicians' supervision and can go to their scope of practice. And that supersedes state laws where it says that physicians have to um, supervise nurse practitioners, which in my view is is not appropriate. So I can't answer the question about, you know, I'm sure there are some doctors, it's a huge system, who are not good. And, you know, there's a lot of doctors out there in America who probably should have become stockbrokers as opposed to taking care of real people yes, um, or car mechanics or whatever. Um, but so I, I just really am not up to speed on that issue. I mean, in my, uh, um, you know, in my experience with, uh, and I haven't been everywhere, it's a huge system and I've been to as many places as I could physically go to, um, probably 25 or 30, but, you know, that's out of 1,255. I've seen caregivers who are, you know, much more attentive to patient needs than, than I've experienced often in the private sector just because their patient loads are smaller and they're sort of self-selected to want to, work in a mission-driven rather than a profit-driven system. But I, you know, I'm sure there are folks out there. I mean, I have encountered a couple of people who, you know, probably are burnt out and should leave, but that's not surprising to me. No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, like you said, it's a massive system and there are going to be bad apples. Um, you know, I've, I've had a few negative experiences myself, but those are, are definitely few and far between. As far as the, the hiring practices, essentially, if, if, if someone was to write it up, is that, you know, you a, a doctor can't be hired by the VHA if they don't have a practicing license within a certain state and a certain amount of investigation has been done about that. 
um, you know, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just spitballing here, but, but it's, uh, one of the reasons that I bring it up is that, um, there are a lot of guys who are, are weighed down by the stigma of going to the VHA that they're, they're you know, and I, I don't know that there really is a stigma, but they're, they certainly feel one either hearing through rumors or even more specifically their own bad experiences. Um, but to want to, I, I do, I do want to, you know, there's, there's certainly holes, little holes in the dam. Hopefully, you know, we can, can make some improvements, but, um, I'd yeah. Like, oh. yeah, can I, can I respond to that? Sure, sure. Go I ahead. mean, I think that, you know, it's one thing if you've had a bad experience, I mean, I've had bad experience in private sector healthcare and, you know, what I do is try to find another private sector doctor who I like better. Yeah. So I wouldn't, if I were speaking to a veteran, and I do all the time, I mean, I think if you've had a bad experience with a doctor, change doctors, don't leave the system. Exactly. Um, exactly. And if you've, if, if you've read something in the newspaper, don't base your, your decision about going to the VHA by what you read in the newspaper because the coverage is really biased. And, mm -hmm. I mean, I encourage every vet who's eligible and certainly every post-9-11 that is eligible for at least five or six years to enroll because you don't, nece you don't necessarily have to use it. But I, you know, um, first of all, um, if you're eligible, and, and that's, it's a tricky process to find out, but there's, you know, there's a lot of help there to find out. But um, it's, it's a really good system, and... Um, if you're if you have a bad experience and you can't get things done, then you know call Congress, call whatever. But the way you fix a, a system is not by you know destroying it. You fix it by fixing it. And if yeah. you know, um, and it's a much more responsive system than the private sector system. So um, because you, you know, and the kind of coordinated care that it much better. So I would really encourage veterans, and you know, if you've had a bad experience with the government, or you're, you know, you're a veteran, a combat veteran, or any kind of veteran who doesn't want anything to do with the government, um, I really would look at that attitude and and say, wait a minute, you know, uh, yes, this is a government-run program, but it's awfully good, and people may be very surprised. I mean, I've seen guys. I, I mean, I was recently at two um, two support groups for PTSD support groups for vets from Vietnam, and these guys had lived for 50 years with these horrific problems that they didn't get help for, and then finally they went to the VA mostly because they retired, and they were getting help. And it's tragic that they hadn't gone and that they dealt with this on their own. So any young vet, you know, who thinks that I don't need it, I can tough it out, I, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't express weakness, I, you know, hate the VA, I hate the government, I would say, check it out, check it out. You, you, it can't hurt you to check it out. That's what I tell most people um, when I am do. Well, I used to do orientation for Grant Per Diem and you know, when I'm trying to get people into the program and everyone's so wary of the VA. And these are people, you know, who are chronically homeless, you know, dealing with mental health issues with addictions, et cetera. And it makes it so difficult uh, 
you know, when they are just naturally wary. And I totally understand that. Like I get their apprehension, but at the same time, yeah, it's that same thing of just saying, Hey, you know, we are a resource for you and, or the VA in general is a resource for you. And if you don't have a lot of options or just in general, like here's a bunch of resources that are in, that are available for you to use because of your service. And if you want to try and do something else, that's fine too, but this is here for you. And it's better to try and use what you have versus trying to go it alone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the biggest problem that the VA has that is completely unaddressed by Congress and the media is exactly what you're talking about. I mean, the biggest problem is people who have either mental or physical problems, particularly mental health problems or behavioral health problems, and who who think it's weakness, you know, or who think I can tough it out, or who think, oh, I don't have PTSD. I don't know why I've been married three times and my children don't talk to me, you know. I mean, it's, it, you know, people who are suicidal. I mean, 20, you know, 14 of the 20 veterans who are supposed to, you know, who die each day from suicide have never gotten help from the VA. And, you know, that's to me the biggest problem is how do we get people into the VA for care, not how do we get them out into the private sector? Because if you think private sector hospitals want to deal with chronically homeless, mentally ill vets, no. think again. Absolutely not. I mean, the average homeless, uh, what is it, for emergency rooms, uh, it's about $5 million a year just for care of people that don't are uninsured or underinsured. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I was at the University of Nevada in Reno a couple weeks ago talking to medical residents who were rotating through the VHA, and it was very interesting. They were very frustrated by the VHA's tendency to do what they call social admissions. In other words, it you know, a guy has a leg ulcer or a toe infection, but they're chronically homeless, and so they're admitted to the hospital. And these residents were like, why are they admitting them to the hospital? Homelessness is not a criteria to get you into a hospital bed. Well, you know, it should be because if you have a leg infection and you're homeless, how can you keep it clean? And then you're going to get your leg amputated? But these residents who are trained, it, it speaks to the problems in the in the physical health care, you know, our, our private sector health care system, that they, what I consider to be a strength of the VHA, that they will admit a patient to the hospital for those reasons, they consider to be just a source, a huge source of frustration. They also considered veterans to be a huge source of frustration, you know, because they were alcoholics and addicted and they had all these mental health problems and you couldn't fix them. And, you know, they're trained into a fix-it model of, of medical care and treatment. And the, you can't fix a lot of these problems with any of us, much less, you know, veterans who have PTSD or major depression or schizophrenia or whatever, and traumatic brain injury, these are not things that you can fix. You can manage them, you can restore function, which is one of the things the VHA does, but you can't make them disappear. No, they can only only get swept under the rug for so long. Yeah. Oh. You know, and the Pentagon would love to have, they're constantly trying to find some 
you know, silver bullet pill that'll make PTSD go away forever. But I mean, not that I don't think it, I mean, it'd be great if you could get rid of trauma, but they just don't want to admit that, you know, they're causing a lot of the problems veterans have. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone. Anyone who you think might be affected by it. Maybe a, a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one. Uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name. Advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment that the military creates for minorities and inflicts on them around the globe. And anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're very blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I probably can't think of right now. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Matthew Ho. Will Arends, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, and Matt the Virgin Slayer. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if you'd like to contribute and Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Karpinski did a really awesome job making our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Make sure you check on the site there for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. No, I, I've been doing these webinars um, from the Center for Deployment Psychology, and it's, you know, it's a thing for clinicians. And so they, I did this one on moral injury, which I thought was interesting because the VA recognizes moral injury, but DOD does not. But they're starting to understand, um, in, I mean, at least I did this whole webinar on moral injury, and they went through a lot of the, uh, the stuff that's been talked about. But um, then I did another one on remote combat stress, specifically dealing with people in my situation, like the intelligence people working the missions, not necessarily the drone pilots and operators, but just talking about the burnout and the, the stuff that happens from remote combat stress. And they, in this study, they were using moral injury as part of the framework in how to identify some of the issues. And it was two active duty uh, Air Force psychologists that were giving the webinar because they did the study. And I was really impressed that they are starting to realize like, okay, this is a good framework for us to understand some of these issues and how 
they correlate to um, attitudes and behaviors later on. Oh, yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I'm so impressed with the VHA's recognition of moral injury. And, and um, you know, there's a woman at the San Francisco VA. I described her work in my book, Battle for Veterans Healthcare. And she's developed it. So the parent, you know, there's some patients who are not very responsive to traditional gold standard PTSD treatments like prolonged exposure therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. And so they've developed, they realized um, that one of the reasons is they've, of this kind of moral injury or that they actually killed someone or saw people like children killed in Iraq or whatever. And she developed a killing scale um, to look at these particular veterans and developed a whole separate treatment, um, you know, for these veterans to help them deal with their PTSD. And I mean, you'll never find that in the private sector, you know, uh, or, I mean, I don't know, maybe there would be somebody, but I, I, I know I was talking to a Vietnam vet who went to Kaiser out here in California and was put in group therapy for PTSD. And his therapist told him, don't talk about your experiences in Vietnam because it'll upset people. What? what? Yeah. I mean, can you believe it? Well, because they're not going to have separate groups for veterans, you know, like they, I mean, you know, you, 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 you can't, that would never happen at the VA because it's all veterans, you know? And it was really interesting because I was at this, at this um, support PTSD support group for veterans that I went to here in Northern California, it was mostly Vietnam vets, but then there were a couple of Gulf War vets who were in their 50s, and they said they felt more comfortable in the Vietnam vet support group than they did with a bunch of younger Iraq vets. So, you know, they have these options, right? You want to go with Iraq vets, you go with Iraq vets, you want to go with Vietnam vets, but they all understood each other's experiences, and the therapists who were not veterans understood their experiences because... You know, they're—that's all they deal with is veterans. If you don't get it after you know thirty years of like treating veterans, I mean, you know, you're kind of forced to learn about military culture. And I mean, I when I was started doing this book, I didn't know what a DD two fourteen was or an MOS or whatever, you know. And I had to learn that myself because the civilian—we don't know about that stuff, right? We know about other acronyms. I'd like to uh, switch gears a little bit here and talk about the Mission Act. Um, sure. And, you know, it's this huge bill that got passed, and they're promoting it as, you know, it's going to bring all the community care programs under one umbrella. W- what do you think about it, Suzanne? Do you, I, I personally think that it's, it's the first in a series of death blows to the VA. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that's the intention. Um, the Mission Act was passed in May of 2018, um, and it's called the VA Mission Act of 2018. And it basically gave the VA secretary, who was then David Shulkin and is now Robert Wilkie, um, who is a Trump appointee who used to work for Jesse Helms and a bunch of other very conservative um, senators um, and worked in the DOD, 
it gave him very broad latitude to set access standards for veterans to go to outsource care to private doctors, hospitals, psychologists, etc. It also has a provision that assesses quality of VA facilities and services and says that if quality isn't as good as the private sector, the veteran should go or should be sent out of the VA. And it sets up something called the AIR Commission, the Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission, that kicks in in 2020, um, which is a, it's like a bracket, it's like a base closing commission. And essentially Congress, it's a kind of, they, they will identify facilities that should be closed and Congress is allowed has to vote up or down on the whole list. They they can't say, no, not that one, not that one. And so it's essentially um, what happened was, and I think this was really a tragic mistake. Um, I, I That's the kindest way to put it. Um, the veterans, major veteran service organizations, 38 of them lobbied for the bill. I think it's because they were um, bamboozled, uh, by promises that the what's called the caregiver support program, which was for uh, exclusively for 9/11 post 9/11 vets, where caregivers of of uh, very seriously disabled veterans would get help caring for their loved one or a friend, and they were lobbying for that to be expanded to veterans of all eras, and they were that was put into this bill in a very clever way to seduce the VSOs, which they bought it, they bought right into it. Um, and um, essentially, they were told that Wilkie wouldn't, uh, they, they would use uh, a, a clinically, they would use a, a criteria to judge whether a veteran should be sent to the private sector that was based on medical necessity. And basically, Wilkie just ignored all the promises and has created a stin access standard that uh, will outsource thousands of hundreds of thousands of veterans to private sector care. Essentially, if you live 30 minutes from a 30-minute drive time from a VA facility, 30 minutes for a mental health or primary care appointment, or you have to wait 20 days, more than 20 days, and if you have to drive more than 60 minutes for a specialty appointment or wait more than 28 days, you can go to private sector care. And, you know, almost everyone lives 30 to 60 minutes from a medical appointment, particularly, you know, you could live two miles and it could take 30 to 60 minutes in traffic. Mm -hmm. So it's drive time, right? The algorithm that he's adopted, he won't make public because it's proprietary, um, and essentially, they're going to start on June 6, encouraging veterans to leave the VA for the private sector. So you're going to get to have a discussion with your provider. You know, Henry, Kagan, where do you live? How long does it take you to? And it'll be quite interesting to see whether the dictates from Washington, which really want to push people out, they're uh, you know, people at the local level will say to veterans, stay with us. We can give you better care. Convenience shouldn't trump quality. Plus, the other thing is, is they also promise rural vets who live far from care and maybe far from a VA 
that they're going to get better access to care because they can go to care in the private sector. But most rural people who live in rural areas, there are no qualified medical specialists. There is no, uh, no you know, surplus capacity in the primary care sector. 55% of American counties, all of them rural, have no psychiatrist, social worker, or psychologist. So this is a big boondoggle to get people into the private sector. And, um, you know, tragically, some VSOs, I've talked to people in AMVETS, the Legion, they're ramping up to offer services to become vendors for the Mission Act. Some people, um, there's all kinds of, you know, uh, people who are, who are pioneering, quote unquote, some very dubious therapies like ketamine for depression you know, who are trying to become providers uh, and, get, and get veterans. And veterans aren't being told uh, anything about the qualifications of or wait times in the private sector. And in fact, Congress refused and the VA secretary refuses to impose the same kind of stringent uh, requirements, educational requirements on private sector doctors and providers that they do on VA doctors. Um, so it's a, it's a wild west out there in the private sector. You have to be your own care coordinator, your own patient advocate. And, you know, veterans don't know what they have in this jewel of a healthcare system that they may complain about, but it's so much better than what's out there in the private sector. So and let me tell you, saying, I've experienced private sector healthcare, and I'm pretty knowledgeable. And I can I can tell you some pretty hair-raising stories of what's happened to me. And I'm a healthcare researcher. So basically, you're saying there's going to be no coordination of care, no uh, training, so the doctors don't really know all of the issues and the complexity of issues, and it's and it's not going to be available to people. Well, they did a study. Let me give you an example, um, Henry and Kagan. They did a study, Rand Corporation did a study of New York State uh, primary care docs, nurse practitioners, uh, mental health practitioners, physical therapists, and they asked them, they developed seven criteria for whether they were competent and, they, and capable to take care of veterans. And they did this huge survey. It has the fifth largest veteran population in the country, New York State. And guess how many of the people they surveyed met the seven criteria? Guess the percentage. 20? Two. <laughs> wow. Two percent. And they asked these uh, providers whether they had any, you know, military cultural competency, any knowledge of military culture. The vast majority said no. And then when they, when they asked them would they like to learn, the vast majority said no. So they were perfectly happy to take your money and do their bid for vets, but they weren't willing to sit down and learn about, you know, your particular healthcare problems, your particular experiences, talk about moral injury, PTSD, whatever, you know. They don't know how to, they don't know how to distinguish in an Iraq or Afghanistan vet between, you know, normal asthma and burn pit-related asthma. And by the way, they don't know how to get you to be on the registry. 
So this is another thing that's going to happen. We're going to lose all kinds of information about the kind of injuries, moral and physical and mental, that veterans, uh, you know, have while in the service. Uh, we're going to lose all that information because it's going to be scattered out there in the private sector, you know, cyberspace, ether, and nobody's going to collect it. And that's really convenient for the DOD and people who don't want to pay for wounds of war, you know? No, it's, it's, it's absolutely astounding. I, uh, as I've been sitting here uh, listening to you, I thought, you know, it, it might be a project for the, for the three of us, write some kind of a manual that would be like a, a beginner's military cultural competency kind of thing. You know, the, 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 if, if you absolutely had to start at, at bare bones, where, where would you, uh, what would you give someone? So, um, well, yeah, and, and, you know, there there are groups that are trying to do that, and they can't get takers because these docs don't want to put in the time because what, okay, so if you're a primary care doctor and you have a patient panel, that means all the patients you're responsible for, of let's say 21 to 3,400 patients, and, and 1 to 5% of those patients are veterans, that's like 10 patients. Yeah, it's tiny. Why would you spend the time, right? And and Congress won't make them spend the time. They have no financial incentive to take the time. I mean, it's taken me six years of my life to understand veterans' problems, and believe me, I've only scratched the surface. Oh yeah, no, it's a it's a very deep issue, and it's one that that even even. Uh, spending a lifetime looking through it, you still won't learn everything. Um, I'd like to I'd like to shift gears a little bit here. I had uh, we're we're working on a on a breakdown on veteran suicide, and so I had some some specific questions about that yeah. that I wanted to ask you about. Your book talks about how that the metric of number of veterans that kill themselves today is actually around twenty, despite right. the fact that we usually hear twenty two. Twenty two is the the big number. No, it's twenty. I mean, not that that makes it any better, but no, no, but it it, it is, it is better that people want to be accurate and understand that it does change. Does, do you feel this metric has any real meaning for the public just beyond kind of vacant mem kind of outrage? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the biggest problem with veteran suicide in this whole discussion is um, that it completely avoids, it, it blames the problem on the VA instead of blaming it on the DOD and Congress and the American public for putting people in situations that cause them a lot of harm, harm which sometimes can't be fixed. And, um, you know, why is there so much veteran suicide? I mean, first of all, there's a lot of suicide. I mean, suicide is on the increase in America, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, often there's, um, you know, suicide, but they, I think they're beginning to call it from despair, you know, like you lose your job, you, you're, you're in chronic pain, you're aging in chronic pain, and you lost your job, whatever, you know, you socially isolated, Um and I think that um, the tragedy about 
the discussions about veteran suicide is a it lets the, it le- it lets the Pentagon and the public in a way for supporting some of these horrible wars off the hook, and it blames people who are trying to deal with this problem for a problem that they're trying to fix as if they created the problem. Um, so, you know, and there's, I think there's an unwillingness also to accept the fact, I mean, in some cases, and probably in most cases, suicide is sort of an impulsive act, but in some cases, you know, people have been so damaged by their experiences that maybe we can't fix them. I mean, Americans like to think that everything can be fixed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I find really interesting in this discussion about veteran suicide is why, you know, I mean, for example, there seems to be a pattern with some veterans killing themselves in VA parking lots. Well, why are they doing that? You know, is it, are they doing that because the, VA, because the VA hurt them? Or are they doing that because the VA is a symbol of the government and they can't get onto Travis Air Force Base or Fort Belvoir to kill themselves because, like, they can't get on the base, you know what I mean, with a gun, whatever. Um, I think it's, it, yeah, like you said, it speaks more to the general society, like the, and the fact that as veterans we feel isolated and alienated a lot of times because yeah. most of the country has no idea about what we've done what we've been a part of and they don't have any kind of common understanding to feel um to feel good like or to to help us feel better right so that's why you know when you see most people that do or not most but there's a high percentage of those that do it after the first three years of when they get out because that's when you're feeling that separation you're really feeling that wow i used to be part of a team and a mission and i used to have a goal and now i don't have those things and I'm in a society, a hyper individualistic society that cares yeah. so much more about the person and do your own thing and make sure you do it by yourself. And then you're coming from this environment of team and also this team of self, uh, this, um, you have a lot of self-reliance in the military too. So it's like, you know, I got to do what I need to do, but I'm also used to having people have my back. And now yeah. I don't have any of those things. And right. I'm in a society that doesn't care about those things. So now I have to navigate this life of figuring out this big transition of moving from this structured environment to a non-structured environment and all of these resources at my disposal to not as many or having the trouble of trying to navigate those when I'm also dealing with all these other problems uh, piled on top of it. And it's really frustrating that we, yeah, we turn to the VA and we say, why aren't you fixing this? When, as you said, 14 out of the 20 are people that have never sought VA care. So it's not the VA's fault. It's a larger societal problem of, hey, we need to actually recognize what people are going through and then help them get the resources that they need. Right. And also, um, I think that that's why this attack on the VHA by Congress and the media is so tragic and almost, in my view, criminal because you're discouraging, first of all, we should let all veterans in. You know, there should not be eligibility requirements. Service to your country should be enough. We have, we are the richest country in the world. We spend all this money on these elective wars that we don't need to fight and all this 
you know, military equipment and everything. I mean, it, there's an incredible book that a woman named Dina Razor did about, you know, the Marines' refusal to get the padded helmets that would prevent traumatic brain injury. And some guy had to start a not-for-profit, you know, to get these helmets to Marine troops because the Marines wouldn't, you know, do what the, I mean, they, they, you know, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force was using these. And, well, we're different. You know, I don't know. Marines' brains are different than soldiers' brains or airmen's brains or whatever, you know. And, and that is just, I mean, you have a $700 billion budget and someone has to start a not-for-profit, you know, to give helmets to the Marines. And it's the same thing with, with you know, veteran suicide. Everybody should be in. And what I'm worried about is under the Mission Act, you know, they have a system in the VA. They train every single employee for at least an hour, you know, everyone, like a groundskeeper, uh, you know, a dietitian, uh, uh, a food service worker. They train everybody to recognize sort of suicidal ideation and, you know, the myths about suicide. Like, you know, there's a big myth that if you say to somebody, are you thinking of killing yourself, that'll somehow give them the idea. It's like, oh, no, I wasn't thinking about it before, but now I'll think I'll do it, you know. And there's, they train them, and then they train higher levels for depending on people having patient contact. So if a veteran goes to a hearing doctor and the hearing doctor says, come back in two weeks and, you know, they know the veteran's been depressed, and the veteran says, oh, I'm not sure I'll be here in two weeks, you know, in a depressed way, and that hearing doctor, who's not a psychologist, will you know, will act on that and, and, and realize that this could have significance, right? That's, that doesn't exist in the private sector. Um, you don't have suicide coordinators, you know, and uh, hospitals don't necessarily follow rules for dealing with people who are suicidal. They don't have, you know, veteran crisis lines like the VA has. And so I think it's really important to stop this bashing and stop this blaming the VA. And I think under Mission Act, it'll be interesting, and I hope it doesn't happen because I fear it will happen, that you'll see more veteran suicide. Because the other thing, as you point out, that the VA does, the VHA does, is it offers camaraderie and social support to veterans that isn't available in the private sector. No, that's a, that's a absolutely a great point. Um, I mean, when I was at these two PTSD support groups for vets, these are not su these are not considered suicide prevention programs, classically. But I swear, guys, in the t 50 people in these two groups that I talked to, fully 50% said that they would have put a gun to their head if they didn't have this group. So I that's it. suicide prevention. But it's not, you know, and those kinds of successes in suicide prevention are never discussed. I mean, I got out of there practically in tears thinking, you know, what these guys have been through and also thinking about why is this never recognized as suicide prevention? You know, they've just prevented a whole bunch of suicides just in these two small programs that, by the way, there's talk of eliminating some of these peer support programs because 
why should you know? Why should they keep? Why should the VA keep staffing them um, <clears throat> when there's acute need? Well, they should be doing both. They should be doing chronic support, you know, long-term support, and dealing with acute need. We have the money to do both. There's a lot of people that they want to look at these issues very with a lot of tunnel vision, you know, and they say, "Oh, we need to focus on this and focus on that," but like yeah. realizing that the more holistic that these programs are, the better outcomes there are. And when you look, I mean, I, I know for myself in the programs that I've been a part of when, when we're able to implement a lot of um, different resources and services to the people that need them and to everybody in the program, it just, it helps everyone's overall outcomes. You know, it helps them get out of the slump that they were in or the issues that they're dealing with, you know, and like you said, it's not about fixing, it's about management and that's that's hard that's hard for us to get over you know to get over that mentality of oh we need to like fix this problem and overcome it but it is these aren't things that just go away you know that was something that when I first started figuring out about my own PTSD and I was reading that it's like this is something that maybe never goes away and that's okay you know it's that we can learn how to manage it we can learn how to uh, deal with the ups and downs and the cycles and just figure out how to live our lives the best way possible. And that's, that's a different mentality, but it, it works. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you, you could go 10 years and be fine. And then, you know, your mother dies or, you know, your kid, a kid dies or you have a divorce or you lose your job or whatever. And it comes back, you know, I mean, these things, you know, because you're, sort of psychological immune system is worn down. And so then you have a place to go. I mean, I've been told I suffer from a mild case of PTSD for things that happened to me in my childhood. And, you know, I'm fine. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, I have a panic attack. And it's like, I mean, I, it doesn't go away, you know. But it also doesn't have to rule your life. It's like chronic pain, you know. It's the same sort of thing. And that's another thing that the VA does that, you know, this sort of integrated, integrated pain management. I don't know if you guys have experienced that, but. No, no, I haven't. But it's a complicated problem and, you know, veteran suicide. And I mean, you know, the problem is okay if there's 14 that have never seen the VA and six that have. I mean, we don't know, you know, why did the six have? Is it a failure of treatment? Is it just that they have, you know, end-stage mental health problems that, I mean, I, you know, there's a famous Iraq vet who killed himself named Daniel Summers, and he wrote a, you know, a suicide letter that really was extraordinary because he had been on too many deployments, had suffered too many injuries to his brain, and he just could not get over it. And there was, you know, there's, there's nothing to blame there. You, you know, I don't know who could have helped him. But, you know, the only thing to blame was, you know, the wars and the combat and the experiences he had. I think it's, a, it's about our society becoming more honest with what the real outcomes are from people being in combat and even just yeah. serving in the military. You know, someone doesn't have to deploy or... or see actual combat to come out with nasty diseases or horrible injuries. It can, it can happen just during training, but, um, 
but you know what what you guys were mentioning about the holistic nature of it that I I, I found a particular little irony in in the the gentleman in your book who kept calling the suicide hotline for somebody to talk to and I I think that that's it's it's yeah. important that that we we understand the the piecemeal operation that the VA does you know that a you know one program may help a veteran five percent if we could possibly quantify it and another one might help twenty percent and you know I really applaud the people the operators at the at the suicide hotline for being kind with this gentleman and and speaking to him if they had time but you know once they understood that he wasn't a present threat to anyone including himself that they kindly hung up the phone um, but that we 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 can't think of it as you know it's not changing oil it's not the simple things that that come with life it is very very complicated and it requires discussions like we're having right now and Suzanne I applaud you for spending so much time on this book it was a, a wonderful book um it's going to become a a, a a a VHA reference reference book for me from now on um I'm just going to take a highlighter to it and go crazy um before we wrap up here today, I was uh, would you share with the listeners, um, aside from your, your wonderful book, where they can uh, find your other work? Oh, sure. Yes, thank you. So um, there's, you know, two books that I wrote on, on, on veterans health care, Battle for Veterans Health Care and Winter War. You can also go to my website, um, which is www.suzannegordon.com. And then I'm a, uh, there's a lot of wonderful stuff on, on the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute website, which is veteranspolicy.org. Um, and we're tracking the rollout of the Mission Act and, and also looking at broader questions of veterans healthcare. So, so those are places that could be resources for folks. Well, please, please consider us a resource here if you have questions or need, need guys to, to interview to, to do further research. Please don't hesitate to uh, give us a call. I won't. I won't. All right. Well, th thank you very much for being with us today, Suzanne. I, I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I will not be